And I said it earlier about my life when I became an N of one and I saw myself as an experiment. That's when everything changed for me. Truly, the goal is that you start to see your own self, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your work, your friends, your colleagues as a living experiment. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with the Flow Research Collective. Welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Today's guest is a special one, our very own Dr. Sarah Sarkis. Dr. Sarkis is a licensed psychologist, writer, and performance consultant. She is part of the Flow Research Collective coaching team, and she's been an advisor to myself and Stephen now since starting the Flow Research Collective. And she approaches psychological growth and change from an integrative perspective where she blends her strong psychodynamic and insight-oriented training with more traditionally behavioral and mind-body techniques to help patients foster insight and achieve peak performance. And today we also have Stephen and Sarah going at it together, and it's an intimate fireside chat-style conversation. We take it far and wide. We talk about key lessons Stephen and Sarah both learned over their career, how they think about and face regret and how they think about cognitive biases and how the unconscious is a driver that most of us tend to underestimate when it comes to our behavior. So you're gonna enjoy today's episode. It's a fun, rambly one in the best sense of the word. I think you're gonna like it. Now, before we jump in, a quick announcement I wanna make. So Stephen has launched a new book called The Art of Impossible. If you've read Stephen's prior books like Rise of Superman or Stealing Fire and you've wanted more depth on how to apply all of the cool things that he talks about. Well, The Art of Impossible really is that book. It's a practical playbook for achieving peak performance with neuroscience-based tools to dial up grit, to dial up flow, creativity, to accelerate learning. He goes through all of those key peak performance skills in detail in a really practical fashion that's gonna allow you to apply them right away. You're gonna love it. And if you wanna pre-order a copy, you can go to theartofimpossible.com. And if you pre-order a copy now, you'll also get over $1,500 worth of bonuses, including a goal-setting masterclass, Stephen's last chapters. These are chapters from all of his past books that he hasn't included that he's created into this new document, which you'll get access to, which is really cool, and loads of other cool things. So that's theartofimpossible.com to claim your bonuses. And to pre-order your copy of the book, you're going to love the book, you're going to love the bonuses, so you may as well go ahead. That's theartofimpossible.com, and you can also click the link in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Alrighty, into the episode with Dr. Sarah and Stephen. Dr. Sarah Sarkis, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here. We've been looking forward to this one for a while. So one of the things we wanted to kick off with as a topic is cognitive biases. Could you start by telling us a little bit about how you think about cognitive biases in general and how you see them show up in the work that you do? Mm. We're taking the gloves off right from the start. What I love about cognitive bias is that we're touching on one of my favorite topics of the unconscious. And as our fearless leader has said over and over again, this is not Freud's unconscious. This is really grounded in the science of understanding our neurobiology and our brain. And the best way to describe it is something that we call the adaptive unconscious. And this is where all of our biases reside, really. They're mostly unconscious. I guess otherwise it's just considered a prejudice. It turns out that 95% of all of our behavior and our thoughts and our everything originates from this origin of these unconscious realms. And we sent out lots of stuff early in the year about all this stuff. So people can refer to that through our mailer and our website and all of that. But essentially, you are a sitting duck for all of your own personal psychological sabotaging patterns, as well as some patterns of bias that are just sort of built into our hardware. Hey, Sarah, just a question about what you just said, because I was wondering, and I'd never even seen anything, but maybe you know, what has primacy, I guess, like a very powerful cognitive bias, like confirmation bias, or a self-sabotaging belief, like which one is going to get in the way first? Do you have any idea? Do they work together? Do they overlap? Are you twice as screwed? First of all, we all have our own unique biases and blind spots that are baked into our own unique upbringing, right? Our own neurobiology. Then we have basic structures around how our brain and our mind and our body work that are just sort of universal tendencies, right? So I would think maybe it depends on, first of all, they're probably running neck and neck. I don't know that it matters who gets to the start line first because an unconscious blind spot is an unconscious blind spot, right? And unconscious means it operates entirely outside of your awareness, but with profound immunity. But I will say in the line of work where I work, what I spend a portion of time trying to help people see and create a relationship where these things can emerge are the psychological patterns that are unique to you. And those are usually the things that have a lot of our history rolled into it, our own unique traumas all sort of baked in there. Sarah, I think one of the things that is distinctive about cognitive biases is their universality and the fact that they show up across the board within the nature of our cognition. What are some of the common but unique self-sabotaging beliefs or more individualized things that you see show up that are not necessarily cognitive biases that everyone has, but that are very common? Well, it can run the gamut from super mundane, like patterns of distractibility, patterns of procrastination, all these things that get sort of hardwired into us just over repetition and over a life being shaped by other beings. Our animal develops a lot of our patterns through what we call modeling and the attachment process. And that's a very profound 
reinforcement pattern that happens inside of us. And it happens from the earliest moments of life all the way to current moment. But I see it all, right? I see there's all kinds of distractions, like people, they have substance abuse things, they have online habits, they have monetary habits, they have interpersonal sabotaging habits that all undermine what they consciously say they want in their life. But we know from what I said a few minutes ago that our conscious desires are 5% of really what kind of moves our needle. And that's just not a big percentage. So it really is super individual and the list is endless of what it can end up being. And it's not all that complicated either. Like the thing about the Freud stuff is it got all complicated. It's really not that complicated. If you start to pay attention to it and you're working with somebody who's trained, a lot of times I always ask if there's a motto in life. I always listen for the sentence, I assume. Unconscious things are tucked into these belief systems that we take them as gospel. And yet when you start to really untangle them, there's just so much there that nobody really consciously thought about. What else besides phrases like, I assume, trigger your shrinkiness? I've learned that when you say, oh, that's fascinating, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? So I'm trying to figure out what would eliminate the, oh, that's fascinating. What are the trigger phrases as you as a psychologist besides, I assume, like what else do you listen to on that when you're looking for the adaptive unconscious at work? I love that question. First of all, I listen to everything because everything is fascinating. Second of all, when I say that is fascinating, it is morally and ethically neutral. That's your own thing going on there, right? But I listen for really everything. Sometimes it's going to come in the form of a story. And sometimes somebody just says something that strikes me and I sort of store it away And I don't know why or when it will show up again, but sure enough, down the road, it sort of shows up. A lot of times, people's repetitive phrases are really interesting. They are kind of moments into something very historical that has been a long-standing part of them. So for me, there's kind of no end in sight to how I'll work with people on this. And by now, I just sort of trust that it will surface. Usually, if you create a tight enough and an intimate enough space between you and the client, the stuff will show up. And what is relevant will surface because you're creating that space where it can. I mean, it is really intimately tied to flow and a flow activity. That would, okay, so here was my next question. Is it beneficial? And I guess this is going to be situational, but as a general rule, do you think it is beneficial for there to be interpersonal flow between a psychologist and a client? Yes, 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 for sure. And they're sort of a part of the good productive work that happens. You know, this is decidedly the wrong word, but words are failing me right now. It's sort of like a dance or a seduction of sorts. Like you have to create a space where 
first of all, you're hyper-focused on that person. You have sort of a shared purpose that you're showing up for. For me, the shared purpose gets to be super broad. It's radical self-awareness. That's at the um, consciousness level. And then at the behavioral level, I refer to it as self-regulation. So we're going to make tiny tweaks along the way. That's going to be all the behavioral approaches that we make, including having flow in your life, including mindfulness, box breathing, exercise, etc. These are ways to start tweaking our self-regulation. But once you really create that space and A lot of it comes down to this elusive thing we call chemistry, right? Sometimes you just have chemistry with somebody. You talk to them once and you think to yourself, I can just talk to this person. And I always tell clients at the end of the first session, you should feel like there's basic chemistry. If there's not, just tell me and I'll refer you to somebody else because that's a basic need for us to get where we want to go. And with coaching, one of the things that I've been learning over the last couple of years, and especially with you guys, the opportunity you've afforded me by bringing me onto the team is that therapy can be, and in some ways is designed to be sort of long and rambling. And at least with zero to dangerous, we're really consolidating it to four hours together, right? It's us me and a client for four hours, separated over a stretch of weeks. And the task of listening in a time-sensitive manner has been really interesting to adapt to. And I have found that it turns out that while they're different in their effectiveness, that basic chemistry is even more critical when there's a time sensitivity, when there's a time barrier. And so it behooves you to just be aware if it's there, because if it's not, you're going to bypass a lot of wasted time if you just have no ego and you help the person connect with somebody where there is that basic chemistry. Have you noticed any ways, Sarah, to increase the likelihood of that basic chemistry showing up? Not really. I mean, I think you can active listen. You can do all these things. The only thing that I've ever found that really works is that I show up 100% present. If I'm distracted at all, obviously the person will feel that. They may not consciously feel it, but they will feel it in other ways. I was bored. I don't know. She seemed not interested, right? They're not going to say, I don't think she was fully present, but they're going to express it in other ways. So first is you're just fully present. And second is that basic principle of pretty much everything is a yes and. You are just trying to connect and move the ball down the field, even a yard. And so any sort of like trying to stop or correct in these sort of traditional ways really ends up kind of pumping the brakes. And you have to have a basic temperament that finds human beings fascinating and that really is freakishly curious about what makes that person tick. Sarah, I'm going to use this to have a yes and question, because as you were talking about this, I don't know if I've ever asked you this. How did you become you? What happened early on where you went, oh, wow, human beings are really fascinating, right? This is what I want to do with my career, A. And B, I want to know, you've been a psychologist for a while, long time. 
what did you used to believe? What were the errors you think you were making earlier on in your career that you don't make now? Such good questions. Okay, so this is the story I always tell when I knew that I was an odd person, okay? First of all, I'm the youngest of six. That makes a huge difference. I have never known life without a huge bunch of people. I was the youngest. I was the smallest. I had the least amount of power. So I was constantly trying to figure out how to get my needs met with people that, you know, didn't need to, right? They were more self-sufficient than I was. So that helps. Plus I was always observing and my temperament style is introverted. So I'm observational by nature, right? But when I was in third grade, my school took us on a field trip to the Plymouth Plantation here in Massachusetts, where I live now. It's one of those places where people dress up in period things and they live like pilgrims. And so this woman who was working there, she just had a day job, was showing us how to churn butter. And I kept later in life, I was like, oh my God, you were doing a mental status exam. And I kept leaning in and asking her, I just want to make sure that you know you're not a pilgrim. You go home and change into regular clothes, right? Because she had the whole setup on. And my teacher kept telling me to be quiet and I just couldn't. I had no self-regulation. Anyway, the next day we get to school, we get a quiz on how you churn butter. And I failed because I hadn't paid one lick of attention to how you churn butter. I had been spending the entire time consumed with whether or not this woman knew she was a pilgrim. I didn't know at the time, but I just was so fascinated. So that was my first mental status. Later, you know, it became much more of a cognitive choice. I was in college and I was an English and a psych major. And I was always really interested in psychology and early in, I was interested in forensics and in particular sort of the mind of serial killers. So I did a lot of stuff on sadomasochism and that kind of stuff, but it became much more cognitive. But when I look back on my life, this is not a wildly unpredictable landing spot. And then to your second question, which is like, what do I do differently now? I mean, so much, right? I almost wish I could call all the people that I worked with from year zero to 10 and offer them a free compensation for the work that we didn't do back then. I'm sure you look back on your older books and think about all the things you would do differently in the next version. It's a torture, right? Yeah. Depending on my mood, there are a couple times I'll read old books and I'll be like, everybody who bought this book should get an apology letter from me. That's how I feel. I feel like I should just send out a universal, I'm really sorry, I'm blaming it on being a novice. Sarah, can you tell us what some of those things are? The number one thing was getting too lost into their story, too much time on their story and really not understanding that balance between letting them feel heard and getting information on who they are and where they're at right now with an emphasis on where you're moving. So just too much in the past of their story, even though it's relevant. And then the second mistake that I made continuously was I didn't know enough about really how 
our unconscious, and also how just our mind, body, and brain, not in a new agey way, just in a scientific way, how it is all tied together. And really working, much like the current paradigm is in Western medicine, right, where everything is a specialty, sort of working within a specialty as though they were not connected to a larger system that is contributing. And so failing to see that made it that the results were limited. Hey there, Rian Doris here again. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to remind you that if you want to pre-order Stephen's new book, theartofimpossible.com, we have over $1,500 worth of peak performance bonuses that you can access immediately. They will get dropped straight into your inbox just for the price of the book which is about 30 bucks. So it's a really, really super deal. And it's theartofimpossible.com to claim the bonuses. The bonuses include all sorts of cool things like secret chapters from Stephen's past books that he never ended up releasing. They include an impossible goal setting masterclass, how to set goals the right way. They include a course on mitigating distraction and maximizing attention to accelerate into flow and much more. So you're going to love the bonuses. Go to theartofimpossible.com or click the link in the show notes and you can check out and get them dropped straight into your inbox. Alrighty, back to the episode. It sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounded like the first one was kind of not being directive enough and letting the client just indulge excessively in their story and narrative and the second one it sounds like is just not having a holistic enough view yeah i didn't have a complex enough view right i hadn't lived long enough or had my own stuff enough to realize how connected we truly are as a whole system what were some of the big insights lessons learnings even areas or subjects you studied that fully populated that view and made it holistic. Most of the time, nobody calls me up because they're nailing it in life, right? Most of the time, it's pain that brings people to me. It's psychological pain or it's physical pain. It's death, it's illness, it's financial loss, it's booze, infidelity, set, all the ways that we just go sideways, right? So I really just learned from sitting with people sitting with people hour after hour after hour. And then mostly is that I started to have all my own shit, right? So I had my own pain. I buried both parents. I had physical stuff come up. I had injuries happen. And I had to figure my own shit out. And when I started to use myself as an N of one, is when everything changed. And that happened probably between 28 and 32 was sort of the introduction into that, you know, really using myself as an experiment. I've been my best teacher. And then I try to translate what I'm observing. And then it would usually make me, because I'm scientific by nature, it would make me then go and research okay, what's the science around this? And what are people saying about this? My mom was super new agey. And so it did open me to this idea, but the new age movement for my temperament style always felt very ungrounded. And so I just started to try to understand it scientifically. And that's been my best guide. 
So obviously you emphasize the experiential learning just throughout life. On the conceptual or more scientific front, what were some of the most influential subjects or even books? I mean, I know Stephen's obviously were high up there. He's my main squeeze in terms of books, right? That's right. Well, okay. So Man's Search for Meeting, I read that my last year of my master's program going into my doctoral program, that really started to get me interested in the power of the mind. It also got me really interested in the power of framing, how you frame something. It was also the first time that I thought about the concept that where you turn your attention is where you're going to land the plane. I had not contemplated these things before, right? I saw your psychology as something much more sort of like happening, maybe even sort of outside of your participation. So that book has been instrumental. Then there's like tons of stuff from like John Kabat-Zinn. He was really helpful at Herbert Benson in understanding the relationship between physical pain and emotional pain. That was huge. All of Stephen's books all of his books. I'm somebody who tries to read between 20 and 40 books a year. So I don't know, every book I've ever fallen in love with has somehow become like a deep, meaningful relationship inside of me. I'm somebody who likes books. They come in a close second after animals. And there's only two other people on planet earth that I like more than books and animals, which is my husband and my kid. So I'm somebody who spends all my time with books, with my clients, basically, and my family. So what's my favorite book? The one I'm reading right now, right? Now, if you had asked me last month, it's the same answer. I'm equally into it once I'm into it. Like right now, everybody should read this book, and you can thank Stephen for this. Such a great book. Oh, my God, is that a great book? It's called How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. And somebody writes on the back, basically, it begs you to read it in one sitting. And ain't that the truth? I mean, you just wish you could have 10 hours to devour the whole story. It's really good. And it's fictional, but the amount of poignant truths, psychological truths inside this book is arguably more than I have ever gotten from a non-fictional course. He does something very complicated there, and he looks at the intersection in a weird way that's hard to explain of language and physics, right? He really looks at how language acts as a framing device, especially around things like nostalgia and memory and living in the past and inability to get out of your own way and how that subtly shows up in language and how that language shapes your brain, which shapes your reality. It's really an interesting way he peels that particular onion. Yeah. So, you know, books have been critical for me as a lifelong learner. And Stephen, I'm curious about what are your, I don't know if you can reduce it down to like a top five, but can you think of the sort of biggest intellectual watershed moments where you look back now at, I don't know, when you were 30 or whatever age, and you're like, God, how did I not? know that or how did I not have that piece of intellectual software to understand the brain in this way do you have top of mind a number of those like big fundamental understandings 
The one that is super foremost in my mind and probably very relevant to this conversation, it was very hard, and this is not unusual for kids, but it was very hard for me to understand that people didn't think the same and that what was going on in my head wasn't going on in other people's heads. There's a name for that, normal narcissism. Thank you. But it took me a while. It was very confusing. And once I realized that, I became like the ultimate pluralist, right? Everybody became the ultimate individual at that point, in a sense. So it took me a very long time to come back around to sort of like in Last Tango, there's a line where I say humans are simple toys. We actually really are fairly simple toys, right? Because we're driven by the same foundational drivers. And so it took me a while after I sort of entered the business world to sort of start to understand that the motivations of the people I was working with, the so-called adults, right? I started to realize that there was nothing adult about their motivation. They were the same scared teenagers I had been dealing with, and they were just dressed differently and looked a little differently. And paid taxes. And paid taxes. But it was like, once I got to everybody's an individual, I got to like, oh, they're adults. They're all so psychologically advanced. All these really basic, simple drivers that seem to be pulling me hither and, and yon in every freaking direction. They don't actually impact other people in the way that like, no, actually, everybody's just as crazy as I am. We're all actually this crazy. And once I figured out that we're all actually this crazy, I started becoming sort of very effective in the world because I started to understand people's motivation, not in a manipulative way. I'll give you a really simple example. It took me a really long time to understand. You've heard me say this in the context of flow for writers. It took me a long time to figure out that my job as a writer was to make my editor's life easier because my editor's life was really hard and he had to please an editor-in-chief who were often narcissists and lunatics. And that's how you get to be an editor-in-chief, literally, And so they had a really hard job. They were really pressed for time. And I thought I had all these other jobs that involved doing fancy things with language and blah. No, my job was to make their life easier, right? And there was a specific way, you know what I mean, that still resulted in good work, but it was less about my ego and more about their needs. Once I was like, oh, their needs are really simple. They're going to get fired if they piss off the guy above them or the woman above them too many times. And that means if their writer who they're betting on screws up and does something really egotistical with the writing, that's going to make them look bad. It was really simple stuff, but I somehow thought that you get your adult card, right? At some point and all that shit goes away. And of course it's not true at all, but it took me a really freaking long, I'm talking like late 20s. No, that's not a long time. You were right on time. And some of it's just developmental, right? I have a really hard time now, for example, dealing with people who are in their early 30s. Late 20s to late 30s, it's become my least favorite developmental error for people because they get boxed in by a little bit by their career and their life choices, their life starts to shrink in interesting ways around 28. You make choices, you're committed, but people get very, very, very blindingly selfish for that 10-year period, and they couch it in all kinds of language that makes it seem like they're actually caring, and it's just like this invisible, crazy narcissism that is really hard to deal with that is really rampant in that era. It's a developmental thing too, right? That's just sort of where you are career-wise and whatever. Yeah, I mean, your late 20s to develop that awareness isn't that 
unusual, right? And yeah, I always think each decade, the 20s to the 30s, the 30s to the 40s, 40s to the 50s, 50s to the 60s and on, there's like an arc where kind of everybody will fall on that continuum. And then depending on your own specific life events, you're going to have what we call arrests, right? Places where you're particularly hung up and you'll have places where you excel and that you are kind of above your peers in a way. And the 30s, that early 30s definitely fills that space, especially feeling boxed in. By the way, anybody in your 30s, just know that tiny inkling that you're getting boxed in, that's the seed of your future midlife crisis. So enjoy it now and take note because it shouldn't be a surprise when at 50, it blindsides you. (laughs) Sarah, is there anything else as a clinician or from a clinical perspective in terms of your client work that you, from where you are right now, can't imagine not knowing, but obviously at one point didn't know? Interesting. Not where I thought you were going with that question. Is there anything else in my clinical work that I can't imagine not knowing? Well, I can't imagine not knowing everything that I know, right? The whole reservoir of what I have available to me now that I have it available to me would feel like a tremendous deficit if it eroded or regressed or, you know, some other version happened. What are some of those? Oh, understanding the human brain, understanding that the mind is encompassed inside of that brain, and also being unapologetically unconcerned with whether or not the mind is separate or exists. To me, I'm like Andrew Huberman. He says, I'm sort of use them interchangeably. I would say probably I do too. At some level, maybe the mind has a little bit more of kind of an abstract eye quality to it where the brain is kind of universal to all of us, right? It's like it's inside all sapiens. So I couldn't imagine working without that understanding. I am much more comfortable that most of our emotional corners remain untucked and sloppy for versions of our whole entire life, and that the goal isn't necessarily to tuck them in and make it look all pretty. It's to actually be able to perform with your shortcomings and to, sure, turn what you can into superpowers, but there's lots of stuff that's just a shortcoming. And you just have to sort of come to terms with it. I'm much better at sitting in grief. I'm much better at sitting in the just undeniable parts of life that have loss involved in them. All these things have just made me so much more effective. There's very little that surprises me that somebody could bring into an hour. And it's not that I can predict. I'm not a psychic. I'm just a regular human. I don't know what's going to unfold when I start working with somebody. But, you know, like Stephen was saying, if you sort of know and understand yourself, first of all, and you have a basic aptitude for the profession that you're in, and I'm in the profession of the human experience, you can kind of predict where people are going to go with stuff. So all of that just plays such a huge role. Stephen, is there an area of your learning, and you've talked about really emphasizing evolutionary psychology and having that be kind of a key, whatever you want to call it, mental model. Is there an area of your learning 
and development over the last 30 years that you wish you'd double down on more earlier that has been immensely fruitful and you feel like, God, I wish I had read 10x the amount of books on that 10 or 15 years prior? Yes. You know, a part of me wishes I had the really deep understanding of neuroscience then that I have now, or at least what feels like a deeper understanding of neuroscience now. But I don't get to be me. If I'm not a poet in college, right? I was a poet. I can do things with language that very few people who do science writing, for example, or any of the business writing, any of the stuff I do can do because I spent eight years studying poetry. And what happens if you take the word lightning and put the word blue next to it? And how does it change if you put green or red or angry or take your pick, right? Most people don't run those experiments with language. Two words together, three words together, how they change your internal state. I think one of the reasons I got so good, by the way, with psychology and neurobiology in a sense was the interioception that's required to write well. Right, like writing is about conveying emotion. You remember three or four ideas from a book, but mostly how it made you feel. My job is to move you from feeling to feeling to feeling to feeling and convey information along the way. And because I have a really deep understanding of how words make you feel, I had to get a really good understanding of my own psychology, right? I wanted to do psychology early on out of like deep curiosity. I was probably taking psychology and neuroscience classes before I was taking poetry classes when I was in college. Definitely psychology and history of science classes before I was taking poetry classes, I think. But yeah, if I've been reading neuroscience every day, all day long during that period, certain things would be farther, faster. But you can't ask questions of like that to me because I won't change anything. I love my life. I love who I am. I love everything that I'm doing. I love all the people that I'm, I'm also the kind of guy, if I don't like anything, I change it right? Nobody's in my life who I dislike, even like the slightest bit. My life's too short. So nobody has to ever wonder that kind of thing. I'll never have to clean house of people because they're already, they're gone. They can't get past the gate with me on that stuff. I wouldn't change anything anywhere along the way. So I don't know. No, that makes total sense. The sequencing, it sounded like, is part of the key. Well, two things I want people to hear about what Stephen just said that's the most important. And I'm going to start backwards. First of all, a lot of times, regret shows up in our life from the activity and the exercise of looking back and wondering what you could have done differently to somehow get a different outcome. A lot of times it's camouflaged as a faster outcome. And what Stephen is saying, which is, I say this to every client when they start to express that. And again, Everybody who is relating to anything that he's saying, go read How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. You can't go back in time. And I always say, you are not late. You are right on time. No matter where you are, you are never late to the party. You show up exactly when everything congeals for that chapter in your life. And the other thing I wanted to say was about what he was saying in the beginning part of that, which is that when you try to edit later in your life about your past life, you are essentially like Stephen could not have become the wordsmith had he not taken 
the side road that was poetry, right? So nothing is ever wasted. It is never, never, never wasted. And actually, I'm going to tag on a third one. He used early on when he was talking about his writing, he said, I experimented with words. And there's that word again, experiment. And I said it earlier about my life when I became an N of one and I saw myself as an experiment. That's when everything changed for me. Truly, the goal is that you start to see your own self, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your work, your friends, your colleagues as a living experiment. You are in the midst of a living experiment. And usually that'll take you pretty far. Yeah, I think there's one thing I want to add to it because as you were talking, it popped to there's one thing that I learned and it wasn't clear to me until right around 30. And I think in the back of my mind, I sort of thought at some point I was going to become an adult and it was going to like start to feel different or start to be different or all the things that I wanted were just going to start. Right. And I got to a point right before I got Lyme disease and it was really, you know, this was the critical point driven home by Lyme disease. And it's in West of Jesus is your life is never anything more or less than you make it. It is entirely on you. Nobody is ever going to do the work for you. In fact, most of the people around you, just by the fact that we're all sort of foundationally selfish in that we have to survive, right? And I was especially surrounded by a lot of very poor people. We, none of us had any money, right? So it wasn't like somebody was rich who was going to like help us out. It was just going to be us and nobody was going to do it for me. And there were going to be no easy breaks. And there was going to be no nothing. And it was just literally like me showing up every day to do the work. It also occurred at the exact same moment in time that I realized that I liked the work more than I liked other people, right? I'm an introvert, but I had always sort of like tried to be an extrovert, tried to be an extrovert. And finally, at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I don't like people that much and it's not going to happen for me. So how did I solve the problem? I just got rid of my social life, right? I reduced my social life down to like, I'll see one or two people maybe a week and I'm going to absolutely love them. They're going to be my favorite people and I'm not wasting my time on anybody else. And all the rest of the time, I'm either going to work or I'm going to surf. I'm going to write or surf because those are the most fulfilling things I can do all the time. And I cut out. And that's just me. I'm not telling people to go out there and cut other people out of your life. It's what worked really well for me. But those realizations came at the exact same time oh, wow, I really have to do this. And oh, wow, my priorities are wrong. I'm just driving by pleasure. What am I doing? And to scale what Stephen is saying is to emphasize that you are a living experiment. And by him figuring out what makes him tick, which is decidedly different than somebody else, even though there may be overlap, but each person is an N of one. And if you start to invest in knowing that those parts of yourself and then making, he makes it sound because it's hard to convey the discipline that it takes to curate your life in a way where what you are doing and spending time on reflects what you value and what your goals are. That is a practice, a day in and day out practice and a discipline. And so for people to think about like, oh, well, I'm extroverted. So what he's saying doesn't apply to me, but it does at a metaphor level. 
It's about being really curious about what makes you tick and then curating your life to have those conditions present. And then psychologically, you start to get to bump up against the things that are sabotaging your efforts. And yet you're not even aware of it. For Stephen, it sounds like at a certain point he realizes, I like the work more than I like going out four nights a week. Why am I going out four nights a week? Yeah, it was on the back end of Lyme disease. Early 30s, I was single, you know, Jewish mother who really wanted me to find somebody instead of sort of, there was that kind of pressure. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm so sick that if I go out at night, if I try to like stay up and go out and have any kind of social life, it will take me out for days at a time. And surfing did the same thing. And I was like, oh, wow, I would rather surf than have a social life. And I would rather write than do either. And I was like, oh, now I have a priority list. And it just, it never dawned on me because there's a lot of noise. For me, it took a long illness, it took three years in bed till I could actually like really start to hear my own voices. You know what I mean? There's a lot of noise. Yeah. The pain is often the portal in. See the previous dialogue we were having that, you know, this is another example of how your own pain becomes this thing that ultimately sort of rebuilds you. Post-traumatic growth. And that's really at the heart of when we talk about like neuroplasticity and we talk about change, you know, people like it when it sounds like neuroplasticity is like namaste and a glass half full and think positive and all this stuff. They don't like it when they realize that neuroplasticity is also often often comes dressed as a kick in the ass, your ego's beaten up, you're physically in pain, you have illness. They don't like that that's also neuroplasticity. I wonder if Donald Hebb ever thought of it this way, when he was like, neurons that wire together, fire together, and your pain and your trauma and your sadness and your mother. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love the mother gets thrown in there. It's awesome. But it's true. You know, it requires constriction, restriction, friction. This notion of neuroplasticity as something that's like beautiful. You know, sometimes it's 18 rounds with your worst nightmare. And three years in bed with Lyme disease is a classic example of that. Mm. Okay, guys. Any final sentiments you want to share, Sarah, before we wrap? I just want to do a shameless plug that anybody that feels like this conversation jived with them and they want to work in this arena, that we have coaches who do this and do this type of work all with different flavors. And this is doable stuff. So that's my shameless plug for us. (laughs) And my shameless plug is for Sarah, who is still, I think, the person I call. Like when shit goes wrong in my life, Sarah's who I call most of the time. So let me thank both of you for helping Stephen be Stephen. And I promise to continue to talk myself in the third person because that's so pleasant. Yeah, and not an indication (laughs) of narcissism at all either. At all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, you guys are awesome. We'll do this again. Please. Hey, Ryan, thank you. Another great conversation. Appreciate it. You guys are the best. Yeah, it was great, guys. Thanks a lot. See you, everybody. Bye, guys. I'll be great. See you, guys. See you, Sarah. Bye, Ryan. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect 
to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.